Hello everyone, welcome to Adorn Talk Sports. I am your host, Anna himself, and welcome back to a show that has uh, accidentally been on hiatus. <laughs> Sorry, that's on that's on me, to be fair. Uh, a lot has happened, uh, including new location, as you can probably tell by the fact that the sound quality isn't up to its normal stuff as of yet. However, that'll eventually get fixed. Now, more importantly, Wildcard Weekend has begun, and it has been interesting to say the least. If you had to put one word as to how this game has really been, how this weekend has really been, uh, I would go with comebacks. Whether successful ones, failed ones, just periodic ones, as we'll talk about in this very first game, comebacks very much feel like the name of Wildcard Weekend. A lot of things coming up chalk, but there are a couple of quote-unquote upsets that have occurred, and one matchup that kind of wasn't expected at all, and... You can take a guess, sort of, maybe, maybe, uh, at what that matchup is. Let's get into this, because I'm going to try to make this episode a bit of a short one as we come back from our uh, totally accidental hiatus. So, let's start off first matchup of wildcard weekend between the San Francisco 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks. The 2v7 game that most people have sort of accounted as a quote-unquote bye week for the second seed, I think the seventh seed uh, as of this point, prior to this match beginning, had not won a game since the seventh seed was introduced. Will that change this time? I mean, you probably know the results, but all the same. 49ers end up defeating the Seahawks, thus keeping that seven seed sucks mantra intact for another week. They win 41-23. to Now, the score does seem big. You would be surprised, though, because at halftime, this was a 17-16 Seattle lead. The Niners were struggling, Brock Purdy was struggling, and the, you know it sort of looked like, hey, are the 49ers on upset alert? Then the second half comes in, and it kind of just uh, blows this out of the water. Multiple turnovers by the Seahawks that the 49ers are able to capitalize. Great plays by the skill players on the 49ers. Christian McCaffrey has, I think his first carry was a 68-yard run. Uh, had Debo Samuel looking like Debo Samuel. Uh, making huge plays, a fourth-quarter touchdown that goes for 74 yards is another huge play as well. Um, just zooms down the field. Niners end up with 24 first downs and over 500 total yards, so most of that really picked up in the second half as well. Um, the struggles uh, for Brock Purdy to start off the game kind of were evident. You could sort of tell, okay, wait a minute. Purdy doesn't look as... Uh, fantastical as he's been over the first couple of weeks uh, of his time and still undefeated, but uh, not quite at that same level. With that said, though, second half, he's able to bounce back. There's a lot better of a skill. Purdy ends 332 passing yards, 18 of 30, three touchdowns and a rushing score as well. Those stats look good. I think they're a bit inflated. It's, it's weird to say because that's kind of the scheme. The scheme is built so that the quarterback doesn't throw it deep but lets the skill players do what skill players need to do, and that's exactly what Purdy's done. Purdy has played like Kyle Shanahan's dream quarterback, if that makes any sense. And he's got the improvisational skill and the mobility skills uh, that allow the system to be taken full advantage of. So Purdy, uh, as he's been for the past few weeks, he's continuing to be just as dominant. Uh, on the Seattle side, Geno Smith looks like he's going to stay the starter, and he had a first half that was amazing. Second half, not so great. Uh, kind of slowed down there, despite the efforts of Juno and DK Metcalf had a huge game uh, in this one as well. Um, Metcalf ends up going for 136 yards on 10 catches. He also had two touchdowns. No other Seattle player had anywhere close to that type of level. So uh, 
successful there, but the 49ers defense was able to make a lot of plays, especially in that second half with the forced fumble, uh, the interception, a number of other plays. The Niners defense was able to hold down and say, okay, well, let's calm down. Let's get back to Niners football. We just stop you and run the ball. They stopped. They ran the ball. They lead up to points from there, you know, play action and the normal Niners routine. And from there, they're able to go into the divisional round. So 49ers end up winning against Seattle, what we expected. The amount of effort it took for the 49ers, especially in the first half, probably wasn't quite what Seattle or quite what, what the 49ers were hoping for or expected. But things look good for both teams on the 49ers side in the immediate future. They're moving on to the divisional round to face uh, the what will eventually be determined to be the winner of the Dallas versus um, Buccaneers game. On the other side, Seattle, despite the fact that they made the playoff picture and were able to have some big plays and have, make some big effort, they also have a top five pick from the Broncos, which is going to be incredibly helpful next year and going forward. Okay, so we talked about a one-point comeback. That's not the type of comebacks you came for, right? That's not what you're looking for when you think comeback from a game, right? One point for a team that's favored, that's barely anything. How about a 27-point comeback? Let's talk about that. The Jacksonville Jaguars take on the Los Angeles Chargers, and after the Chargers got a 27-0 lead with less than two minutes in the first half, Jacksonville is able to come back and win this game 31-30 on a last-minute field goal by Riley Patterson. Jaguars move on to the next round. Chargers are eliminated. Let's talk about this. The Jaguars' first half looked like if a bunch of me's went out there to play this game. The second half looked like a bunch of Hall of Famers went out there to play the game. So I think the easiest place to start is that first half. The first half was not good at all. We have to start this off. Uh, it was just not great. He starts off, Trevor Lawrence does, the quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars, with not one, not two, not three, but four first half interceptions. It looked terrible. Asante Samuel Jr. of the Chargers, I think, had three of them. It was just incredible, but there was always a caveat with every single turnover. The first one is batted away. The second one comes on fourth down. The third one is honestly a battery. That's actually probably Trevor Lawrence's fault. Uh, a fourth one, uh, another great play by Asante Samuel. Now, there's another thing as well, which is uh, that some of those uh, turnovers have a lot of asterisks behind them referee-wise, right? There's at least one of those interceptions that, was, uh, that wasn't overturned that should have been because of the penalty that was placed on there. So Trevor Lawrence comes into basically most of the first half with the world's worst playoff debut. And yet there was always a little bit of hope. And as they go into halftime after the Jacksonville Jaguars are able to drive down the field and get that first score, the score at that point, 27-7, there's always a little bit of a glimmer of hope. And it might be because of the team they're going against. It might be Jacksonville just being really interesting. There was a little glimmer of hope of, like, maybe Jacksonville can do it. And as they come out of the second half, they are on fire. Despite the fact that Jacksonville turns it over five times, those four interceptions and a punt that bounces off of the head of a Jacksonville guy landing into the Chargers' hands. Despite that, they couldn't put them away. Multiple drives with short field position aren't able to get much going and instead lead to a field goal attempt. And at a certain point, when Cameron Dicker misses a field goal with just under nine minutes remaining, life is fully breathed back into the Jacksonville Jaguars. They had opportunity after opportunity, and it's not great. The defense was fantastic for the Chargers in the first half. I mean... It was 
Asante Samuel Jr., let's take him as a perfect example, ends the game allowing just four catches on 12 targets. Those four catches, 27 yards. That's it. One touchdown allowed, true, but three interceptions, I think, more than make up for it. And despite that and the efforts of a variety of Charger players, it just isn't enough. Whether it's Zay Jones, whether it's Christian Kirk, whoever it was, Travis Etienne, plays are moving, plays are going in Jacksonville. Final drive of the game. They got to get a field goal at this point. They are down by two. It's fourth down, fourth and one, a minute 27 remaining. Peterson lines up with three running backs behind him. What does it turn into? Not an inside run like basically the entire world was thinking, but an outside toss to ATN who bounces to the outside and picks up 25 yards that eventually sets up that game-winning field goal. A brilliant call by Doug Peterson in a place that nobody expected that to happen. As Doug Peterson tends to do, he throws out all the guns, just everything out there for that final play, for that clutch play. Uh, as you can tell, being an Eagles fan, I'm incredibly biased and think Doug Peterson is fantastic. So Chargers, uh, effectively, what's the term? Chargers keep on charging a charger, and presto, Jacksonville is able to come away with the victory. The splits are absurd. Trevor Lawrence is passing splits in the first and second half. In the first half, one touchdown, four interceptions. This guy looks like a terrible quarterback. In the second half, three touchdowns, zero interceptions. The guy looks like a Hall of Famer. It's amazing. It's incredible. The Jacksonville Jaguars are the first team in the postseason that loses a turnover battle by five and wins. There are 26 other games that that type of occurred by five turnovers, and all of them are losses. Jacksonville comes away with the victory here and moves on to the next round. The Chargers, a lot of questions about them, but we're going to save all that offseason discussion for off the offseason. So let's move on to the next matchup. The next game in the books is one of another divisional matchup, as a couple of these were actually, now that I think about it, another divisional matchup between a 2-7 seed. This one, though, even more competitive than the first one, the Bills versus the Dolphins. Now, this was expected to be a blowout of epic proportions. I mean, the Buffalo Bills are coming in. They've been riding high as a Super Bowl favorite this entire season, and the Dolphins, with an upstart team full of offensive ingenuities and skill players like no other, uh, Jaden uh, Jalen Waddle. Uh, Tyreek Hill and a number of other players with Tua being out and Teddy Bridgewater being out Skylar Thompson came in instead and this was expected to be a complete blowout instead it's an extremely close competitive matchup between these two teams the Bills gave a lot of chances to the Dolphins but are able to come away with the victory just edging it out 34-31 in this matchup as the Bills continue going forward the Bills this season have turned over the ball a lot fifth game with three or more turnovers this season, and the third straight game, that is the case. They cough it up three times this game as well. The issue at hand when it comes to these turnovers, the same player that gives them the opportunity to win, and that's Josh Allen. Two interceptions and a lost fumble. He had two other fumbles that the Bills were able to recover. Those lead to 17 points, including a scoop and score on the very first series in that second half. Every opportunity the Bills had, the Dolphins had another one right back at them. And it was a situation where they had basically multiple opportunities to give the game away, but the Dolphins attempted to give it away themselves. I mean, they had multiple issues, multiple opportunities to uh, bounce back from mistakes that they made, four false start penalties, a number of delay of games. And part of this can be attributed to brand new starting quarterback uh, a third-string quarterback and that, trying to converse with the coach while managing the team and everything, and there's a number of situations, a number of issues like that. Though, biggest one, 
just less, uh, just around two minutes to go. Fourth and one, a delay of game. Pushing that back to fourth and six, that just changes the game plan entirely on that one specific drive. And that's sort of a microcosm of the Dolphins in this game. Able to get to those situations where a conversion is just right there and then aren't able to do it because of a self-made error. Number of early drop passes as well. Thompson played decently. His passing line wasn't great. 18 of 45, 220 yards, touchdown, two interceptions. But played pretty okay. Uh, the picks weren't, you know, the, the bad plays were very bad, the picks, for example. But the good plays were pretty good. Gave another opportunities, and Dolphins were doing all right. There were a number of opportunities that they had the ability to uh, really convert. But the Bills were able to do just enough. I mean, the defense for the Bills, let's talk about them for a split second. Uh ended up getting 11 hits on the quarterbacks, four sacks, uh, and were able to really put a lot of pressure, which led to that passing stat line that uh, doesn't look like a great percentage, at least, uh, for the very least. Uh, They were able to be really good on third down uh, as well. The third down defense was really good, and the Bills' defense was really the team that ended up winning this game. Now, were the Bills in this specific matchup? They got by. That's the important thing. Even Josh Allen mentioned that afterwards, just saying that, hey, the important thing is that a win is a win. Uh, and we're moving on to the next round. The thing is, though, in the next round, they're going to be playing the higher caliber teams, right? The Chiefs, the Bengals, the Jaguars are the teams that have left over. By the way, Bengals win that matchup. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Those are the teams that are left. Those are all the powerhouses. Uh, Jacksonville being this upstart team that has the opportunity to compete. I mean, look at the quarterbacks that are on all four of these teams, right? The Bills have Josh Allen. The Bengals have Joe Burrow. Jaguars have Trevor Lawrence, and of course the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, the wily veteran of what six years, seven years or so. Um, so th- there's a clear, <laughs> there's a clear situation here. I don't think actually now that I think about it. Hold up, this is a side tangent here, but this is only six years. This is his sixth year because he didn't start his first year. This is his five years starting, and this is his sixth year. Man, Mahomes is going to run this league for a long time. Anyway, sorry, that's a side tangent. We can talk about the Chiefs when we get to the Chiefs next week. Uh, In this situation, at least, the Bills, despite the number of drops and interceptions and fumbles, turnovers, all these situations that were problematic, the Bills are still able to come back, basically, and play effectively, play well. And the Dolphins, a lot of great effort. Uh, soon afterwards in the post-game conference, when asked if Tua was going to be the starting quarterback next year, I think both the GM and the head coach uh, said yes. Absolutely, no questions about it, which is a thing that we're going to take into account, right? Next year, Tua, with this team, if he's able to stay healthy and if he is, of course, cleared and everything's good for him to come back next year and be the starting quarterback for the Dolphins, I'm thinking positively here, assuming that Tua comes back, all is good, then this Dolphins team could be an interesting team to look out for because if Tua was here, this game could be different, especially if Tua was playing like early season Tua where uh, the offense was just putting up points like no other. So in my opinion, the first half, the first couple of games in this slate were the ones that were quote-unquote easy to pick, right? Everyone had the 49ers beating the Seahawks. I think everybody had the Bills beating the Dolphins. And then the Jaguars-Chargers one is interesting. I think more people chose the Chargers, at least according to the uh, the broadcast. Um, but you know, that one could be up in the air, but I feel like most people would have chosen a team and kind of stuck with it. Here in this later half are all the 50-50 games. All three of these next games are basically coin flips, right, for various different reasons, whether it's because the teams are really good or the teams are really bad. Uh, I think this latter half were definitely considered more of the coin flips, and here's a perfect example of it, the New York Giants taking on the Minnesota Vikings. Now, on paper, this should be easy, right? You've got the Giants, a team with no skill players whatsoever besides Saquon Barkley, 
and wide receiver group that has zero people you can name compared with the Minnesota Vikings, a team that won 13 games and is 11-0 in one possession games. So they can win all the close clutch games that they need to. And the Giants are a team that, you know, is offensively challenged and the defense is still coming into it. Daniel Jones had a great season, but can't live up to, you know, the Kirk Cousins-Justin Jefferson connection and like Adam Thielen and Dalvin Cook, you know, the, the as I close my glasses for some reason, the, the the impact the Vikings would have would be that good. I chose the Vikings in this little mini league that I have where we pick every single game because I thought, you know what, this is going to be another one possession game. The Vikings just somehow win, and 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 that 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 didn't that didn't really happen because um, as Rich Eisen said, uh, Daniel Jones turned into Colin Kaepernick during his prime uh, San Francisco years. Uh, that's basically what happened, right? Daniel Jones. Um, now, if you've been a long-time listener, uh, this, is, this sounds like a pivot, but trust me, it's not. Uh, if you've been a long-time listener of this podcast, you know that uh, while I haven't been very vocal about it on Twitter, I have been very vocal about it on the podcast that I think Daniel Jones could be, will be, a great quarterback. Uh, I've been ride or die with him um, to the point where I have at least once picked the Giants, uh, almost, if not completely, to win the division. Um, in recent years. Now, of course, that hasn't quite happened, uh, and for whatever reason, I've been able to backtrack enough to the point where I feel comfortable with it, but I have always said I think Daniel Jones, with the right type of players around him, with the right skill set, with the right team, with a coach that believes in him and everything, Daniel Jones could be a really, really good, if not great, starting quarterback. And man, do I feel good that it's right. Um, Daniel Jones, in this game, looked like what happens if Eli Manning had wheels. That's literally it. Daniel Jones acts like Eli. He looks like Eli. He sounds like Eli. He throws like Eli, except Daniel Jones has the ability to run. And add that with Eli Manning, turns into a god in the playoffs. And so far, that seems to be going well. Am I being biased here because I've been rooting for Daniel Jones since he got drafted? Yes. Is that you know detrimental to the fact that I'm an Eagles fan, the Giants are coming up against the Eagles next week? Yes. But, as the room I'm in echoes, this game just kind of proved what peak Daniel Jones looks like a running machine that has the ability to throw the ball for 300 yards. He ends this game 24-35 for 301 yards, two touchdowns. He ran the ball so much he led the team with rushing. As a reminder, Saquon Barkley is on this team, and Daniel Jones led the, led the team in rushing. And you might think, oh, that's because Barkley didn't have a great game. No, he had a really good game himself. That's the wild part. Uh, on top of that, the Giants' defense was incredible. First off, before we get to the defense, New York's wide receivers are starting to get unnamed and they should really be named. You know, Saquon Barkley, of course, being the running back, recovers himself. Uh, Isaiah Hodgins was, I think, a practice, squad, a practice squad guy like four or five weeks ago, has turned into a stud for the Giants. Darius Slayton coming back uh, from the brinks of disappearance uh, to really put an effort in uh, and put an effort in. Definitely did more than that. Um, but it just contributed significantly to this Giants offensive team that was able to roast the Minnesota Vikings defense, which this entire year, at least statistically, hasn't been particularly great. Uh, but they're eventually able to go in and beat this three-seed Vikings team, uh, controlling time of possession and avoiding mistakes. Daniel Jones, another game where he does not turn over the ball, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and just well, Giants in the playoffs, man. Dable gets his first playoff win. Uh, this is the first Giants postseason win since their win against the Patriots the second time. That was over a decade ago. Daniel Jones do what Daniel Jones is going to do. He runs the ball for over 75 yards as well and just played it beautifully. The defense for the Giants as well, they shut down Jeff Justin Jefferson significantly. Uh, ends up only with, uh, 
I'm trying to remember where the stats that I wrote down here. Uh, I think it's like seven catches for 47 yards or something like that. Uh, Cousins is forced to go somewhere else, not able to be as effective there, and that's because of the pressures that New York was able to place. Dexter Lawrence, Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, Leonard Williams, just pressuring Cousins, just forcing him to get out of the pocket and into a situation that he's not able to make the plays that he needs to. Multiple hits as well. I think there's over a dozen hits on Cousins and just making him uncomfortable throughout the entire game. This Giants defense is growing before our very eyes. And for teams in the playoffs in the NFC, that's dangerous because the last thing you want to let the Giants do in the 21st century is get momentum. <laughs> think of the, the previous two Super Bowls. If you want to be that guy, think of the 2000 Super Bowl. Either way, you don't want to let Giants defensive players get momentum because that's where legends like Michael Strahan show up. That's where OCU Minura, Justin Tuck. There's a list of names of Giants defensive players. And if you're an NFC fan, you don't want to see Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams. You don't want to see them add to that list. Vikings magic uh, on their side eventually runs down. There was a number of self-fulfilled uh, ish, you know, penalties and other items like that uh, that forced them and eventually just led them off the path. And now it leads to an interesting situation for the Vikings, what they're going to do during the offseason. We'll discuss that in the Vikings episodes, uh, whether I do an entire long hour plus long thing or split it into parts like I did the Super Bowl case. Remains to be seen, but there's a lot of questions about the Vikings team because they were really good. But were they perhaps too good, especially for what the end result was? Remains to be seen. Is this me sort of putting like a teaser tag like I'm some sort of journalist uh, trying to get you to click on the next article? Potentially, but I actually don't know how I'm going to review this or analyze this. And of course, a lot can change between now and the end of the Super Bowl. So for the Vikings, we'll put a pause on them. The Giants live for another week, and Daniel Jones has placed his stamp on the NFC, of which I am very, very happy about, but also I'm terrified because they're going up against the Eagles next week, and I do not need Daniel Jones to continue the Eli Manning Joe Flacco, uh, Colin Kaepernick-esque runs that lead into a Super Bowl appearance. Um, no need for that. Thank you very much. I would appreciate that. This next matchup, to a certain extent, kind of emulated the 49ers Seahawks matchup between a team that is much better than the other one and yet kind of gets close. Or maybe it's closer to the Bills-Dolphins one uh, between two teams that are at different skill levels because of a guy missing in action, and yet the matchup is significantly closer than it's supposed to be. That is the Cincinnati Bengals going up against Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens know Lamar Jackson. Said Tyler Huntley comes in to play quarterback. The Cincinnati Bengals riding high with their offensive weapons, and the defense has been putting a lot of pressure on the Ravens and even last week or just in general this week, this year. And yet this matchup gets very close. This matchup, a back-and-forth affair. Uh, this matchup, again, like I mentioned, the exact same matchup as it was last week. And the Ravens defense, doing what the Ravens defense has done since the Ravens came into formation, and that has been a nuisance to an offense. Uh, the Bengals didn't even get to 250 yards of offense for the entire game. They just plays were shorts. They were able to convert on third downs, which is really what that big play was that uh, they were able to take. Um, the Bengals were not able to take advantage of their explosive plays with Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase or T. Higgins um, or Joe Mixon or someone else like that. Um, and had to play instead more of a Ravens-esque football of just short plays, small plays, run the ball, try to slowly matriculate down the field. In this game, one play obviously is going to be in mind, which is the fumble return for touchdown. Huntley uh, tries to QB sneak it, loses the ball, Sam Hubbard able to pick it up, and the big fella running 98 yards in the opposite direction, 
ending for a touchdown that sort of sealed the game for the Bengals. Now, there was a lot of time afterwards for the Ravens to do something. Wasn't able to respond there, uh, and that's despite the big effort of Huntley uh, that he had. Tyler Huntley had a uh, a big game throughout this entire one. Uh, was able to lead multiple drives that were successful, even despite the interception and that fumble. Um, did enough to win, right? Think about the 41-yard touchdown that he had to uh, Demarcus Robinson as well. But just wasn't enough to get over the hump. And then, of course, you're going to bring a lot of questions about whether Lamar Jackson, if he was healthy, which I don't think he was. He said he's not. I'm inclined to believe him and the Ravens are suggesting, hey, he's not healthy enough to play this game. But everyone's going to wonder, you know, if Lamar was here, could they have won? We have to leave that to the to the uh, the theory gods or whatever you want to call it. Bengals, though, uh, as will push the Ravens off to the side um, now that they're eliminated. The Bengals, another offensive line injury makes it rough. The Ravens were able to take full advantage of that. I think they're missing three of their linemen. Uh, Jonah Williams injuring a uh, knee injury, I think. Uh, Dislocated kneecap, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And so next week when the Bengals go against the Bills, now they got to worry about the Bills and their pressures. They had four sacks in this previous game against Miami, I think. Uh, The Buffalo did. So that pressure is going to be placed on the Bengals' offensive line. Now, they've done this before. They've done the offensive line being injured, but we still lead a long playoff run. They've done that entire thing before. Can they do it again? And against a team that is fully ready to bring pressure on them the way that the Bills do. That remains to be seen. For now, though, the Bengals can sign up for another week of this playoff experience. The final game of the season is a game that I think might be the most 50-50 game of all time between the Dallas Cowboys and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This matchup in my head was going to be a low-scoring affair. I thought that the Buccaneers would be, wouldn't be able to do much offensively and the defensively would have the ability to stop the Dallas Cowboys, who looked somewhat rusty last week against Washington. That was not the case. No, no, no. Instead, Dallas decides to put a complete stamp on their ability to score points, uh, fully embracing the fact that, hey, Dak Prescott is that guy. Uh, Prescott leads the Dallas Cowboys to a 31-14 win over Tampa Bay, bringing a lot of questions as to the future of Tom Brady's career. First off, um, I'm not going to put too many points, uh, or not too many points, I'm not going to talk about the Bucks too much beyond what they weren't able to do particularly effective. Uh, what I will say is this interesting factoid, which is that Tom Brady threw the ball 66 times. He threw the ball 66 times. That is ridiculous. And I understand that the Bucs were, were behind very quickly and everything, and there are a lot of drives that were long drives at the end of the game, and so adds to the pass totals. Yes, but 66 pass attempts. I'm going to be honest, that is absurd. And with that said, you get the gist about the Bucks. It's the same thing that's been said about the Bucks the entire year, which is that the defense is great and the offense can't do anything, especially rushing the ball passing-wise. They're kind of ineffective at best. Put a pause on that. Let's move over to the Dallas Cowboys side. Dak Prescott have a game. 25 of 33 for 305 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. He ran the ball as well, has a passer rating of 143.3. Basically, Prescott had the greatest game of his career. Is that hyperbole? I actually don't know. I'd probably have to look up the stats. But nevertheless, this is definitely one of his best, if not the best, postseason game he's ever had. He tore apart the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense to the point where the last touchdown pass that he had, I think, was the one to CeeDee Lamb, uh, where CeeDee was just wide open. There was no one within, like, 10 yards of him. He's just kind of chilling at, like, the two-yard line, and Prescott kind of just lobs a pass to him. Easiest catch of the day. 
to the point where the rush game wasn't, despite the fact that that's how you feel Dallas should win their games, not a huge factor. I mean, the team as a whole only ran for 128 yards. Uh, Dak was 24 of them, right? Pollard and Zeke had their own respectively decent games, Zeke being the you know hard-nosed couple-yard back, Tony Pollard trying to be more effective. Uh, Pollard had more carries than Zeke in this game, 15-13, to 13, though not that big of a difference. Um, the real highlights of, of this game, of course I mentioned the C.D. Lamb touchdown, but the real highlight is the connection that Dak Prescott has to Dalton Schultz. Is this Tony Roma to Jason Witten? If Dak has it his way, I think it might be. And honestly, that could be incredibly great for the Dallas Cowboys going forward. The connection he has with Dalton Schultz was clearly evident in this game. Schultz ends nearly 100 yards. He's just short. Seven catches after 95 and two of the four touchdowns that Prescott had in the air. Uh, Fully effective there. For Tampa Bay, no real progress made. Dallas, full stamp of their ability to score points. Now, this week's game was especially looking back at it in hindsight, remarkably easy, right? Dallas had to face Tampa Bay, not a great offense, and the defense wasn't able to hold or handle the Dallas Cowboys. Next week, they face a far more difficult foe in the San Francisco 49ers, a team that not only has a dominant offense, but a dominant defense as well, including who is likely to be the defensive player of the year in uh, Nick Bosa. So uh, if they are able to put a stamp on the 49ers the same way they did on the Buccaneers, then Dallas not only is in the championship game for the first time since the 95 season or something like that, but also will be coming in with a full head of steam, especially after this game, and if they're able to beat the 49ers, the effort that they put towards that game, because you're not going to sneak by the 49ers uh, without you know without trying really hard. You're going to have to try very hard to beat the 49ers team. Oh, I should have mentioned this as well. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. Uh, Cowboys. Very good. Great game offensively, great game defensively. The special teams, though, Brett Maher missing four extra points is surprising, especially considering Maher was doing fantastic this entire season. I think uh, in the game they mentioned he had missed three extra points in the season uh, coming into this game, which is about on par to what you you might expect, especially for a high-scoring team like Dallas. Three extra points missed out of all of them is, you know, okay, four in this game? Had, Buc- had the Buccaneers been able to put up bigger effort, this would have been a significantly bigger point. But because of Dallas's pure domination, it's to the point where I forgot about it, and it was probably the biggest statistical outlier in history. I think the last time, um, if ever. No, according to... Uh, uh, I can't remember where I saw this point. Um, oh, here you go. Here's uh, Tom Palacero's tweet. Uh, according to NFL research, Brett Maher's four missed extra points on the most in any NFL game regular season or postseason since at least 1950. There's another stat here uh, by Todd Archer. Uh, according to Elias, Brett Maher is the only player in any NFL game since 1932 to miss four extra points in one game, regular season or po- playoffs. So both of these are true. Uh, this has not happened at least in uh, 90 years, maybe more. So that's a weird thing that I hope Maher, for his sake, is able to fix. I don't think that's ever happening again um, in his career or, frankly, in anyone's career unless, you know, winds are 400 miles per hour. But we now move on to the next round here, the divisional round matchups as we get set for the next round. The one seeds are coming into play. A couple of teams have been able to advance. Weirdly enough, I've only just noticed this now, uh, in the AFC, it's completely chalk. One, two, three, four. In the NFC, one and two have passed, but then two of the wildcard teams were able to pass on their side, the fives and the six, which is an interesting situation there. Um, for their matchups, 
uh, on Saturday, we're going to be seeing the New York Giants head to Philadelphia for the night game. Uh, Jacksonville head to Kansas City for the afternoon game. And then on Sunday, the afternoon game is Cincinnati at Buffalo, and the Sunday night game is Dallas at San Francisco. All of these games are going to be really interesting to watch. I can't wait to see them and how they're going to play out. Uh, be sure to stick around for reviews of those games and future games as well as we get back to the group of things with the NFL. Sooner or later, we're going to start up with the NBA. I've been keeping track of that and the weirdness that's been going on there and the fact that uh, there could be like 14 different MVP candidates, depending on how you want to consider it. So that's always fun and will be interesting to see. And of course, we might discuss other sports there as well. But that is the wild card review divisional round this weekend. Very excited for this. I'm going to upload this immediately now. Hopefully I can get this before midnight, though that's probably not going to be the case. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening, watching, and supporting the podcast in any way, shape, or form that you do. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Next time you hear from me, it'll probably be the divisional round. So uh, hopefully between you and I, uh, the connection slash voice video, video quality, the audio quality will be uh, much better and less echoey compared to that. So thanks everyone. Until next time, take care.